See, I hit record and right off the bat, potential spam from New York, New York. Let's answer it and see what happens. This is Kevin. Hi, Kevin. It's Tina Smalley from DCM on behalf of the American Civil Liberties Union. Oh, okay. Bye-bye. All right. So there we go. I, I made a donation to the ACLU in someone else's honor and it's one of those things where you know you make a donation to an organization and you're pretty sure they're using all of that money. Like you're paying for them to spam you and never leave you alone. To, yeah. To then call you every week. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. When's everyone taking off for Phoenix? Monday morning. Flight yep. leaves at like seven. So I'm a little, I'm a little concerned about the time change that I'm going to crash at like, 7 p.m. or something when I get there, but mine's not as bad as y'all's is, so or yours is, Kevin. Yeah, is it going to be three hours for me? I should know this. I think it's, it's three, three hours, hours for you. I think it's two mm -hmm. hours for me. Yeah, Phoenix yeah. can't. They're on Mountain Standard Time, but it's actually Pacific Time right now because they hour, never change. So an hour for me. Yeah. How about you, Samantha? When are you taking off? Um, I think my flight's at nine or ten in the morning. Denver can be hit or miss with flights, so. Figured I'd get in earlier than later. Yeah, I think I take off at 9 a.m. on Sunday morning. Sunday. In the yeah. hopes that I'm just too far away to drive. So my fa my family keeps being like, why are you going so early? Because I'm not driving to Phoenix if the <laughs> flight doesn't happen. I've done that. The, the worst travel experience, which isn't really that bad, honestly, but we were working with a builder in Richmond, Virginia, and flight got canceled in the morning. And I wasn't supposed to get there until the mid-afternoon anyway. It's not that far of a drive. I'm like, you know what? I'll just I'll just come on down because it is impossible to get flights to Richmond. I don't know. It's a it's mm -hmm. a big town, but it was like two or three stops, and I was I'm not doing that. Mm -hmm. So I got a rental car and I drove down and then drove back. Did I drive back? I think I did. I drove to Dallas last year. Cause I was supposed to fly and then they bumped my flight to the next day and everybody's flights were getting bumped and I got nervous. So I just canceled my flight and got in the car and it was just, I don't know, seven hours maybe. Well, hopefully it works out for everybody uh, who's coming. Normally there's a hurricane or something that causes massive uh, travel disruptions. This time it might just be travel itself. That is the disruption. <laughs> we'll find out. Knock on wood. All right, let's get started. Welcome to Market Proof Marketing, the podcast from the industry leaders at Do You Convert, where we talk about the current and future state of marketing and online sales for builders and developers across the globe. We're not here to sell you, we're here to help you and to try and elevate the conversation. Is there a topic you'd like us to cover or a question you'd like us to answer? We'll do it. Simply send an email to show at doyouconvert.com. Welcome to episode 239. I'm Kevin Oakley and with me today is Julie Jarnigan and Samantha Kellenberger. I, uh, I stuttered because I realized that I always, I put a French emphasis on your last name, Julie. Is that proper? So on mine? Did I make that up? Yeah. I always say Julie oh. Jarnigan. Oh, no. I don't, is it Jarnigan? I've never heard that before. It's like just a hard, Jarnigan. It's a hard, a hard Jarnigan. Jarnigan. Oh, okay. mm -hmm. I think it's because yeah. you know, I know oh. you're close to New Orleans. I think that there needs to be a French. But I like that better. Maybe <laughs> I should start having people <laughs> pronounce it like that. My kids, you know, I've said it forever. But they're now old enough where I'm like, do you want to go to Target? And they're like, what's that? It's Target. <laughs> so we've called it since college. 
Yeah, All right. we call it Tarche too. Let's hop into story time. Lots to do, lots to talk about, and not much time because, well, by the time you're hearing this, the summit has happened, but this is one of the fastest weeks of our lives as we do yep. the final prep for the event. Samantha, you want to start a quick update on your house? and Yeah, sure. So um, house, uh, house is great. We just got our landscape design approval from our HOA, which is fantastic. It took a month. So you got landscaping long... with your house though, right? You're just adding onto it, finishing it? Or no, no, we got, we had front yard landscaping, but no rear yard. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And it's, so uh, you have to have HOA approval even for backyard landscaping? Yes. Man, it's intense. It is. Yeah. Well, if I and fly I have... my drone above her house, <laughs> I don't want to be insulted by what I see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a long review process and we have like this whole packet of like pre-approved plants and pre-approved vendors. And it's like, it's a big ordeal. So I'm happy that that's over with. And um, now we're just waiting on contractors to get a date and get it all installed. So really looking forward to having it a yard because right now it's just dirt and it's going to start raining soon. I know I shouldn't be obsessed with this, but the builder didn't include landscaping or you just opted to take it out? No, just they don't include it. Just didn't include, come. Okay. Which isn't, I guess, that uncommon because it's the rear of the home. But it it did make me think of other things that builders have done for cost-cutting methods in the past. And Gus Gillespie, the founder of Heartland, who when I went there was probably in his early 60s. He was telling me stories of, he started a, a building company pre-Heartland that was doing multifamily. And he was telling me these outlandish tales of the walkway up to the front door from the driveway, they would just cut big logs and put them in the dirt. (laughs) And maybe they might put like a coat of shellac or something on top of it. But he's like, we just use stumps. And that was the walkway. And the back of the home, the back of the roof had different shingles than the front of the roof. Like the the front had dimensional shingles, nothing fancy. They were just had dimension to them. And the black was just like completely flat, almost as if you just unrolled like felt and tar paper down or something. Air conditioning was not included. He was just telling me all these. And I was like, holy cow, what year? And I'm thinking in my mind, this must have been like in the 60s. When, mm-hmm. when did this happen? He's like, oh, no, mid 90s. Oh, wow. Yeah. Crazy. It is crazy. Anything else going on in your world, Sam? Yeah, with builders, um, just seeing a lot of new communities coming online. So that's always exciting to see that movement and see that progress forward rather than complete shutdown. So I like seeing the coming soon communities. Yeah, it, there's a whole bunch of them coming. And it's interesting how some people are talking about, I'm really not going to be okay if this gets delayed and pushed into the spring of next year. Some people want to hurry up because they think spring might be worse but generally speaking, launches continue to to do better than the average neighborhood. You might not sell 42 or 52, whatever McBride did that we talked about on the last episode. But even if you're selling, you know, a full month or month and a half worth of sales on your goal, that's that's a great start to a neighborhood. All right, Julie, what do you got? Well, I just finished a new book that was good called Do Hard Things. Steve Magnus, I'm going to read the subheading because it's long why we get resilience wrong and surprising science of real toughness. So it's like a performance. It's a lot of coaching. And I think maybe he was a long distance runner or something. And so lots of sports analogies and research and that sort of thing. But towards the end, he was talking about, so they looked at runners and kind of what their headspace was like marathon runners when they were running. And 
there were two different skills the great runners had, and it was flow state and like a clutch state. So it was, which are two opposite things. So it was flow state where they were kind of zoomed out and not paying attention and losing track of time and just, you know, I've run five miles and I don't remember it. But then there was the clutch state where they were really focused in, thinking about every breath, every step, every everything. And so the really good runners had both and they could go back and forth and had the flexibility to know when they needed which one, because you can't stay in the clutch state all the time. But then if you stay in the flow state, you'd kind of be middle of the pack. So anyway, it was made me think about like a lot of our conversations with our builders. And sometimes I think, you know, that's one of the values you, Kevin, bring to them a lot of time. It's like sometimes you're zooming them out to have them looking at marking conditions and where they are in the market and their price point compared to other people. And sometimes you are forcing them to zoom in at like, how are we going to sell this one inventory home that's been sitting there too long? Or how are we going to get leads for this one community? So it's that it's like two different skills that seem opposite, but they need both and they need to know when to turn which one on. Really interesting perspective. And yeah, I think part of like any, any coach is trying to push you to, to where you're not naturally inclined or to make you better in an area where you can improve. And I have to imagine that for some builders, when they get on a call with me, I I keep having people tell me in my life. So I believe it to be true that I'm in very intense. I feel very Mm -hmm. the opposite of intense. Um, But I can imagine if I was on a call with me, this is very hard for me to process. uh, I would be concerned. Is he going to, is he going to, become intense related to the flow state or the clutch state on today's call. Mm-hmm. Because I definitely, we were on a call with a builder yesterday. Samantha was, was on there too. I was like, here's what I'm going to get really nervous. You know, you guys can make decisions and, and do what you need to do. Every, every company's different. Every culture is different. But if the foundational stuff is broken, I, I can't handle that. I become like a kind of like, and what about Bob? I become Bob obsessive level of like, (laughs) why is this basic stuff not running? It has to be running all the time and you're never going to make up from not having it running and we can figure out and make things better, but the basics just have to be in there. And then there's other times where I can just tell that the, the team probably due to being overly stressed or tired or feeling like they don't have the resources are. And again, we talked about this on a previous episode. They're kind of like individual inventory homes, that's not really what we're set up or designed to do well. I'm like, but do you want to sell that one? Because we're going to have to market that one. If you want to get there. That's really interesting. I, I love it. And also, I'm curious for all of you, what puts what you think puts you in a flow state versus a clutch state? Because I was thinking about this actually yesterday. I don't, we, we have a Jackie Askews on our team does a great job with sitemap stuff and email stuff. And, and Samantha also does uh, design work. So I don't do very much design anymore. And so almost for fun, I was working on a sitemap yesterday for 20 minutes and I felt the time go by in 30 seconds. And it's like, I could relax because I wasn't having to think about anything strategic or go in and out. It's like, I can just sit here and mark this one sold mark. I mean, again, I shouldn't be doing this, but I was just like, it's interesting to me that when I do that kind of work, Maybe it just has to do with the repetition of, of how I've done it so many times over almost 20 years now. Whereas it's hard for me to get to a state of flow on critical 
thinking where I, I feel like I do have to check from all different perspectives all the time to make sure I'm not missing something. Does that make sense with what you're saying? Yeah. And I think if hard deadlines do that for me, if you have a hard deadline on something, it definitely puts you in that clutch. Like I have to zoom in, focus on this and block everything else out. Flow is definitely when there's a little more freedom and space. Yeah. Um, so maybe it was just because I had this, it. had the feeling that I have the time to go waste it on this site map mm-hmm. for 20 minutes. Maybe mm-hmm. that's what it did it. Huh. Yeah. But it was a good book if you don't mind a lot of, you know, if you like all the sports and coaching analogies. Is there something, Samantha, that you feel like puts you in a state of flow? It doesn't even have to be professional. I'm just, I'm, I'm always interested what, like, where you're like, what, what happened with the time? I don't know. I guess kind of recently I've been working on some flyers for a builder and kind of like the design thing. Like if it's not a hard deadline and you kind of just get to mess around with it or try to come up with a new template for them, then it's kind of more of a fun thing than a have to get yeah. it done thing. By the way, officially, we don't do flyers. So if you're a builder listening and you want us to do flyers, we don't touch paper. I'm not sure how, I'm joking. Samantha knows the joke, but I'm not sure how this one instance happened, but we don't, we don't do flyers. We don't touch paper. (laughs) All right. My story time is about a concept that I've, I've been thinking a lot about called first principles. And I just looked up on Wikipedia what the definition is, and it, it basically is a basic proposition or assumption that cannot be deducted any further from another proposition or assumption. So it kind of stands on its own. And we will have talked about this at the summit uh, to some degree. When things shift, when markets shift, when consumers shift, when there is a lot of movement, it's not intuitive to say we need, you know, if there is a 10 step process to how we're doing something, it's not intuitive to say, let's go back to step zero. In fact, that seems like a waste of time because we got to hurry up. All this stuff is changing and there's stress and there's chaos and we got to, you know, get the goods out of the woods, which I understand. But when things are changing, you have to go back and start at first principles and build up from there, from step zero back to step 10 to make sure that you're not doing something that you don't need to be doing or that should be changed. And because we don't think about the things that we're building ideas off of. One example would be like, why did it take builders so long to think, oh yeah, we should put all the calls to action and the chat and make phone number optional and all these other, other things that we, that we did during the pandemic surge, which we should undo those. And it's because we're not, we're not, giving ourselves a mechanism to, to kind of knock on our mental psyche and say, go back to first principles and just start over. And it never ceases to surprise me really when we're talking through a particular problem neighborhood and we'll ask, okay, let's go back to the beginning. And the beginning, their assumption is, okay, let's look at the, let's look at the page where the ad is going. And again, it's like, no, we need to go back to the ad and we need to think about first principle is, what is the context this ad is shown in? How does that algorithm work? What is the type of targeting that's involved? It, it doesn't even start with the creative. It starts with what is the platform and what do we know about that platform as a first principle? And then we have to go back through, even though we think we know it, again, the whole customer journey and check it from every angle again. I just think there's a lot of things that we have said have been basically the same for 15 years and they were built off of science and data or or testing, but they're not going to stay that way forever. And they feel like they're a first principle, but there's some things that I'm finding 
uh, even for myself that I'm like, no, that's, that's actually not a first principle. That's like a, it's, it's step number two. And I need to go back to number one and not be overly biased on where we start. Yeah. And we kind of talked about that today with a builder, you know, taking a new piece of technology and then once they're implementing it, they realize they're just trying to put all their old processes and things in one piece of technology when really they needed to strip a bunch of stuff away and see what needs to be added back in. Yeah. And it can just make the process seem more tedious. You feel like you're overcomplicating it, but really you're going to simplify it down the road if you take the time to do that. Yeah. You might've heard me in different places rail against the idea of having too many people involved in a project. A lot of times companies will say, we need to get a team of 15 people on our CRM implementation council. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that's asking for a lot of distractions and a lot of slowdown. You may not want them on the council, so to speak, but you definitely still need to talk to them and understand their needs and you might even bring them in for a brief moment to make sure that you're looking at it from a fresh set of eyes. But yeah, the, 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 the kind of joke that I came up with was what we hear people say a lot is I, I want this new, faster, better tool to run off of my old complex and slow process that we've used for decades. It's like, that's not the point. The point is to, to look at what the capability of the tool is, the needs of the marketplace or your company and say, let's go through it fresh and think about what we should be doing. Yeah. All right. Now, a quick word from our supporting partner, Open Door Home Builders. Does your customer need to sell before they buy and they found the perfect new build home, but they need to sell first? Connect your customer with Open Door and they'll get a preliminary offer within minutes. Go to opendoor.com forward slash do you convert to learn more about how you can partner with Open Door. Excited to, uh, to have them and Zillow and Zonda on our disruptor panel talking about all the cool stuff. We probably will have a blog post up to link to in the show notes about takeaways from that panel by the time you hear this. So check the show notes because I, I don't have anything to tell you yet, uh, <laughs> but I'm going to ask some tough, tough questions. So get ready to hear more about that. All right. First up, luxury brands spend more on marketing, define economic uncertainty. I'm skipping the first two, by the way, because I think we already talked about them on a previous episode. So this is from the Wall Street Journal. And the rising influence of wealthy consumers keeps high-end products and services in demand. We talked, I think, on one episode about the fact that Toll Brothers had a really big miss and their stock took a little bit of a hit on that end. But generally speaking, one of the things that really smart people that I follow have said continually is when we're talking about the consumer, there is no longer, and maybe there hasn't been for a while, a consumer. There are consumers who are doing really well and still spending. And that's what I think this article is talking to. And there's consumers who are not doing well off financially and inflation is really causing them pain. And they are making decisions about paying rent or utility or getting the food that they need. And, and so this article talks about that, hey, the wealthy people are still spending money. Incrementally, inflation doesn't really affect them. It's, it's like a rounding error. And so global brands are saying, we're going to keep on spending and trying to solidify our brand and our positioning, hoping that other people won't do the same and they'll take market share. What do you guys think about that concept for builders? I hear a lot of conversations and social posts and, and people pontificating about how now is the time to double down, triple down. I saw one today from someone saying, you know, as you're planning your budget for next year, be sure to to keep marketing and advertising pedal to the metal all the way, or else you're 
you have no hope, basically. Well, I don't know about pedal to the metal all the way or you have no hope. That seems a little seems a little extreme, but I do think, and we've said it before, and, and Mike and Jen have been saying it about the opportunity that comes with chaos. So I think part of it is just not missing the opportunity that opens up as we go through like, you know, a market like this and being able to get market share from having a tough market. Also, I thought it was interesting in this article, they were talking about the marketing events that they're having for these ultra luxury. They don't even call them luxury anymore. They call them ultra luxury brands because <laughs> everybody can say they're a luxury brand. Right. Every so apartment called- built since 1999 <laughs> is a luxury yes. apartment. So now you just add ultra at the first of it, but even they're even having paid marketing events, like paid events that are still marketing events. So people are paying to come to stuff. So anyway, we've been, you know, talking about that too, how people again are wanting to go and do things and see things and hands-on. So I thought that was interesting too. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I thought that was an interesting part about the events. I also think it's interesting when they're talking about the Four Seasons did a campaign in August called Luxury is Our Love Language which is said will be the most expensive in the company's 60 plus year history. Ads depict scenes that Four Seasons said are based on real world examples of high profile guests being catered to by hotel employees, such as executives who receive bathrobes, lattes, and steaks branded with their signature monogram. I have to admit, that was kind of eye rolling, this whole article. Yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> that's cringy. cringy yeah. That is, I feel like, I don't know what novel it is. I'm sure, Julie, you know, but... Like Mary, I think about Marie Antoinette, let them eat cake and just yeah. like, what is happening <laughs> talking about that. But I also think this is what's really interesting to me. And this is where hyperbole kicks in and my alert kind of senses go off. This is a quote from their, I believe it's their CMO. I have their email. I have their address. We have a profile. The minute they walk into the door, I know that these are the guests that I should be paying particular attention to, he said. And again, if we're talking about you know, uh, Kim at Kardashian.com, yeah, you've been tipped off that you should pay attention <laughs> yeah. to how this person is treated. And But I, I think the average, even ultra luxury individual, I, I've said this many times in many different places, American Express, you've let me down because I don't feel special having one of your cards. Even though as a kid, my entire life, I saw all the ads about all these exclusive experiences and places and opportunities. Maybe I'm just not spending enough with American Express and those things are yet to be unlocked, but I feel like they don't care. Similarly, I've yet to have, I remember when we went to New York City, Melanie and I, and we stayed at a, at a nice hotel. I think this was our 10th anniversary, something like that. And we checked in and they're like, oh, what are you guys doing? And I'm thinking about all the stories I've heard of, well, we're going to go see Wicked and we're going to do this. And we're taking a cooking class and they're like clickety clacking away on the keyboard. And I'm like, you know, it's going to happen because this is a high end place. When we come back, they're going to have the soundtrack of Wicked playing in our hotel room with a little note saying, hope you enjoyed the show. No, none of that. So I, I think, I think there's two parts that are strange to this. Me. One is the expectation setting keeps getting raised higher and higher and higher and delivery, consistent delivery, I guess I should say, because that's, it's really hard to deliver consistent wow luxury experiences especially now when you can't find all the staff that you want or need someone's going to say well technology will do that unless most of the technology interactions i have in my life are like okay that worked good there's very few times where i say wow i can't believe that this app just let me do that 
Yeah. yeah you're not going to tell somebody else about it. If somebody, if a person, a human does something that seems extraordinary, you're going to talk about it to somebody else. If an app or technology does it, it's not something yeah. worth talking about usually. Yeah. And, and so these high end experiences and brands setting these expectations, I, I personally continue to be kind of underwhelmed by how they're delivering those. I remember also there was a, there was a couple of brands who they were watching people's Twitter streams and, and they would just like intercept them in an airport and deliver a present to them based upon their interests and things they talked about on Twitter. And you're like, okay, that's a wow for that person. And they would definitely talk about it. But then you using that as press to talk about why I should fly on your airline. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, I talked for a while about the propane tank search for our house and we couldn't find any tanks that we could get. And we finally found a company, small little company who said, we have two tanks. We'll charge you ridiculous amounts of money to put them in. And we said sold because we'd been waiting for over a year. But then the pressure in the house wasn't right. And some things weren't lighting and turning on the way they should. I called the business card and the guy said, yeah, you know, I'm three hours away working another job, but I'll be there a little bit late this evening and I'll take care of it. And then he showed up and he did. And now anyone, I'm like, that is the wow to me of this person showed up same day, even though it wasn't convenient for them, even though they were probably really tired, took care of it, said, thank you. Didn't give me an invoice. Didn't say, you know, thanks for dragging me all the way down here. And and that is going to stick with me more than the last 50 things that I've bought or purchased online. Which right. it seems like, I mean, it seems like that should be the minimum, but right now it's not. Yeah, <laughs> right and now it always kind of works that happens. way, right? Yeah. It, it's always that ebb and flow of customer service, the, the you know, lost art. Yeah. And then all of a sudden that's what everyone wants to, to figure out and do, but it's, it's hard to get people again to buy. It's easy to upgrade your service with a tool potentially but where it interacts with human beings gets, gets a little sticky. So this one I'm really looking forward to talking more about, which is from bbc.com. Kim Kardashian adds private equity firm to her portfolio. So um, she is going to take other people's millions and billions and invest them with her. Uh, she, I'm pleased to announce the launch of SKKY Partners with private equity veteran Jay Sammons as co-founder and co-managing partner, along with Chris Jenner, who will serve as partner at our firm. Together, we hope to leverage our complementary expertise to build next-generation consumer and media private equity firm. <laughs> For more information, visit skky.com. So, of course, her private equity firm is also, I think, a brand of vodka. Is Sky a vodka brand, I think? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They put an extra K in there. The reason I wanted to talk about this is, to me... I heard someone else on a non-industry podcast talk about this concept and it really hit me that over the next 30 years, personal brands with technology and the ability to create content and audiences will have the ability to kill almost any major consumer packaged good brand that exists now. And Kim is one example of that. She's, she's, I'm not saying she's not an intelligent person, but she's certainly not a experienced private equity founder or manager. And yet this is probably going to be an extremely successful venture for her because she has an audience. So imagine this, if she has an audience of, gosh, I don't know. She's actually, I think the second most followed person digitally after Mr. Beast, who recently crossed a hundred thousand followers in total. We'll talk more about him at the summit, but if she invests in a company and then she hops on Instagram 
or TikTok and says, this company's awesome. Check it out. Guess what's going to happen? A whole lot of people, yeah. I mean, Skims, I think was her product that she, yep. you know, you could say knocked yeah. off of what's the established brand. Thanks. Spanx, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you got Spanx, you got Skims, which I'm just now realizing is a playoff of Spanx and Kim. <laughs> but extremely, wasn't it worth, I think it's worth $3 billion. And all she did really was iterate on something that already existed, put her name on it, and there you go. Yeah. So she's kind of taking out the middleman instead of her making money off advertising for these companies. She's just investing in these companies and then using her platform. Yeah. To, um, show. I, I did think it was funny. If you go look at the picture, it definitely is not an accident that she wore like a blue, I mean, a blue, a black turtleneck, like Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs Elizabeth uh-huh. Holmes. It gives you a little blonde hair, Elizabeth Holmes. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's like, like, it's like a cat suit though. It's like her version. Of, it just made me laugh. Cause yeah, that, is funny. that was very like strategically done by her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm again, we'll dig into it more, but Mr. Beast recently created a hamburger chain and has sold over a million hamburgers. The guy's a YouTuber, knows nothing about opening a restaurant or creating a franchise and sold over a million hamburgers. He opened up his first physical location, had over 10,000 people attend the opening and they had to go on their platforms and say, please don't come because lines were too long. He did something else. I think he did a pop-up hamburger store one time too. It was just, it was, this was permanent that he just opened in New Jersey. The pop-up one had people in cars waiting 20 miles away in line. So Coca-Cola, Dove, Soap, all of you are on watch. And I think the translation here to home building is, I'll, I'll use a quote from, I saw someone else at an, another conference say that, I think it was the Blueprint Conference, no one Googles anymore. They just use social media. Now we've talked about that. I don't, we can look at our data and say there's a whole bunch of people searching and showing up from search engines way more. In fact, when you take out advertising than directly from social accounts. And again, I know that's complicated. There's connections there about exposure and then searching for a brand you already know exists. But if we think that social media and audience creation in general is going to become more important And we think that brands and air quotes or companies are going to become less relevant and filtered out either by algorithms or humans themselves over time. I kind of feel like I'm not saying anyone should do this, but if you remember back to some of the infamous meaning famous online salespeople back in the day at Heartland, we had Ask Sarah, Sarah Williams. We had Ask Ingrid, uh, Ingrid Prince. You had Ask Astrid. Uh, at, at EYA, you had several builders kind of use this individual's personality where they would appear in a lot of the videos, their faces obviously all over the website. And I think there's been a movement away from that because of a fear of what happens when that person leaves. But to me, that someone somewhere should be thinking about how to, to do that for the long term. And it might have to be that it does become like a Dave Thomas factor where it's the owner Hi, I'm Dave Thomas and I make great hamburgers kind of a situation. One thing I'll just throw out there is I wouldn't be surprised if someone approaches the, the right individual and it, maybe it is your current online salesperson and says, we're going we're gonna to create a separate uh, agreement here. We have your employment agreement. That's how you get paid. And, and that's what it is. And we're also going to create another agreement that says your likeness, your voice, and 40 hours of your time every year forever are ours. <laughs> because I don't, I don't know how you do that 
over time. I can definitely see how, like Studio McGee, um, I forget the name of their show on Netflix, but extremely popular interior designer. For a builder not to just knock on their door, especially a builder who's geographically close to where she's located, say, all I need to do is help us design four floor plans, four curated packages for each floor plan, put your stamp on it, and use your audience and your Netflix show to talk about how awesome this is, and we'll give you X percent or whatever. And done right, that would be an extremely successful venture. So how crazy is all that? You guys are my crazy feedback crew today. No, I don't think it's crazy. I think it's going to happen eventually. Like, I don't know in what way, but somehow there's going to be somebody new comes along or does this that has more of a face of their brand than a, than a brand. And like you said, it's happened a little bit, but I don't think it's crazy. I just don't think the right, think the right combination of it has to come along and people have to see it succeed before they get brave enough to then Yeah. So then everyone can copy, next. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I, I know who was it that used Dale Earnhardt Schumacher homes. That's, that's who it is. They, did an endorsement deal with Dale Earnhardt or they have like a signature line of homes. At least they did. I'm not sure if they still do. That's not really what I'm talking about because that is just using attention in a whole other sphere racing and translating it to this. What I'm saying is find someone who is extremely passionate and building an audience already around real estate in your local market or the type of homes that you build and leverage that to its fullest extent. So not just celebrity endorsements, those have been around forever, but celebrity endorsements that have an audience um, already. And and the last part of this thought to me, I don't know if it was you, Julie, or if it was Becca that we were talking about this with uh, a builder who uses, oh, I, I, I remember it was our, yeah, it was Becca call yesterday. They're one of their f- companies they're friends with is does a, doing a lot of work with influencers right now. And, but their perspective was, but they're not really tracking any metrics. They don't really have any data. They're, they're doing it and it's okay. The way it's not the way that they would choose to do it, but it, they're, they're doing it. And the conversation led to exact, that's kind of leads further down my point of if you can't measure it at all, or, or haven't yet found a way, you might as well just go all in, like don't dip your toe in the water. So again, if you're going to take my idea and call the Studio McGee people and say, let's do business, don't offer to pay them $10,000 for two posts. Go all in and just say, I can't measure this anyway. So I'm going to go all in and and make this joint agreement where we're now connected. It just seems to make more sense to me than... Like you said, I have seen some builders and had some builders who have dipped their toe in, but it's been more like a local, has somewhat of a following and they're building a house. So they have a few posts. I don't think that's the scale that you're, you're talking about. So I've seen a little bit of that. Yeah. All right. Next up from Twitter and Reddit. This is pretty funny. Uh, Andrew put this on. We didn't have a chance to talk about it last week, but it's just a, a stat and a thread on Twitter. We'll link to it. That shows that a Mexican abuela has one of the hottest cooking channels has an average of their last 25 videos has almost 400, well, over 300,000 views each. And that is outperforming both Gordon Ramsay and Martha Stewart. And if you go and watch any of these videos, it's all filmed on her daughter's phone. 
as the camera. So production quality is on a scale of one to 100, like a nine. Maybe we round up to 20. <laughs> but in comparison to a Gordon Ramsay or Martha Stewart, Bon Appetit magazine, uh, who else is in here? Jamie Oliver. Remember him? He was the guy who's going to mm-hmm. end sugar in schools. Mm-hmm. Um, Sam, the cooking guy, New York Times cooking. It's pretty incredible. And, and Andrew's point that he wanted us to discuss was this is just another reference point to say that the right content destroys production value in the end. We can make fun of jittery videos and how people are um, not maybe putting in the effort. But at the end of the day, if you've got good, good content and the right audience can find that content, it, that, that is what makes it explode more than the production value alone. Yeah. And I think it's just that, did you go watch some of them? I did not. No, I did. I think it's just kind of the on authenticity of things too. I mean, people can see through the, you know, BS of if somebody doesn't want to be there or it's just a face or name, yeah. like she's so sweet. Like I don't speak Spanish and I could sit there and watch all of her videos too, because I just think people can, can see through to somebody who's really authentic and Samantha, you watched some, what was your feeling? I did. Yeah. I just feel like they're um, relatable. I mean, people can watch them and they can, it's not um, like Martha Stewart, like a big fancy kitchen. It's just her little, I don't even, I I mean, I've never seen a Mexican kitchen. So that was kind of fun. I'm like, wow, look at that. But um, yeah, I just think they're relatable and easy to follow and just. There were a lot of people like her that were trending in the pandemic. I remember there was an Italian grandma that my wife started Mm -hmm. watching constantly. And it was part of the deal, which probably became less honest over time was, you know, the husband and wife would fight because they're old people. It's like, why are you doing that? That's not how we do that. And oh, yes, it is. Shut up. And that was just part of the charm of it for sure. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think at the end of the day, focus on providing the best content. And then certainly there's nothing against leveling up production value either. But there is something to be said for just being more raw and authentic too. By the way, I saw, I posted this on Facebook Apparently, there's a device that you can order for $700 that will magnetically clip to the underside of your vent and live stream your cooking for you. So it has a built-in camera and it has a built-in temperature sensor. So you point it at the pot or the skillet and it live streams that current temperature in addition to all the other data to, to your thousands of followers on whatever platform you're using. Okay, well, going one step further, my one of my favorite, I don't even know his name, so I can't send you there. My favorite thing on TikToks is this professional chef who then watches people's home, like their TikToks of cooking things and critiques them. And it's hilarious. It's yeah. it's by far, and I don't, I'm not a cook, but it's my favorite part of TikTok. <laughs> yeah, I, I think Andrew has shared that one before too. There's a couple yeah. of them. Gordon Ramsay's done that. And, um, but there's another guy, I think I know who you're talking about. Mm-hmm. He's funny. Last but not least, and this is not in the show notes, so it's okay if neither one of you have done this. Have either one of you seen the Netflix special or series by my house, the the Shark Tank like thing where people walk in? No, no, I've heard y'all talk about it, but I haven't seen it. Good. No, you you do not need to go see this. Save your time. And this is coming from someone who who loves House Hunters International, especially, but House Hunters, because I can skip through it. And there's so many of them. I can watch an episode in seven, eight minutes, guess the right house, impress my kids, and then go to the next episode. 
So it doesn't take much to satisfy me when it comes to real estate related content. Also, all of the um, million dollar listing shows, I've, I've watched all that stuff. This show, the production value is terrible. The, the, the production, I guess the way they've edited the show is terrible. So it took 11 minutes for basically an exchange of, I think my home, actually, I'll, I'll pull up my, uh, my quick recap. I gave someone else on this. It was, it was pretty funny here. Just a second. There we go. So this is the very first house on episode number one. So this should be the most compelling, most interesting ever, right? So they, they show this house in Texas. They go to the neighborhood. They interview the family about how much they love living in this house and how great it is, but they want to move. Um, but they don't really go into their story very much. It's like, what does this house mean to you? So they're trying to make you feel like, oh my gosh, I hope these people get what they want. And then they go into the Shark Tank style negotiation. And I kid you not, over the course of about five minutes, this is all that happens is the seller says, we think our house is worth 850. And Denisha says, one of, one of the four people, one of the four sharks says, uh, I'll give you 690 for it. Brandon says, I'll give you 700. Pam says 710. Uh, Glenn Kelman, the CEO of Redfin says, Redfin will give you 730. Uh, Denisha says 740 and then and then Redfin wins at 775. And all I'm thinking is this was filmed back in 2021. The sellers said we want 850. And then at the end they go watch it, go watch this part of it just so you can ag agree with me. <laughs> the sellers go, you know, we really think 850 is fair, but okay, we'll take it. And there's there's like in Shark Tank at least there's that kind of like tension of back and forth. This was this was just people throwing out a number and saying, well, it's going to take some work. Well, this is what I think. But it was nowhere near the number. And it's not like when you're negotiating for a company, like I want 15% for a million dollars, I'll give you a 14. It's just a, I, I, part of me, uh, because of our relationship with Open Door, part of me was just thinking, maybe this show is not interesting to me because Open Door could have just said, I'll pay you 800 in 30 seconds. Like, mm -hmm. like if <laughs> part of me... And this is um, part of me thinks if I worked at Open Door, I'd be like, hey, let's just create a series of TikTok shorts that mocks this show. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you could, you know, be videoed for four hours and put makeup on and do all this just to be told that we're going to give you, you know, almost a hundred grand less than you asked for. Or you can just put in my address on Open Door. <laughs> just, yeah. There could have been something interesting, but the homes weren't even really... One of them was kind of interesting. It was like a hippie uh, off grid kind of thing that they wanted, but they wanted a million dollars for it. And that just seemed ironic to me is like, do hippies want a million bucks? Shouldn't they just donate it or. And then are they upset afterwards? Like, does it show them devastated no, that they didn't the, get 850? No, that's the thing. They were happy and excited. So either their number is made. I don't know. It's just the whole thing. Yeah. Ass, it's a skip for me. Some people on our team think it's, it's, better than I do, but I just would say save your time and energy. But I, I'm curious that that is this week's question of the week. If you've seen the Netflix show by my house on a scale of one to 10, 10, meaning it's, I, I could watch this all day long, 24 seven and one meaning good idea, bad execution, not going to watch it again. I'm curious to see what everyone thinks. Also, I may go watch it. Maybe you I'll should watch it, watch it watch an just to rate it. They, they don't even do a good job of hyping up the judges. Like Glenn Kelman is an incredibly 
smart, articulate person. And it's like, Glenn Kelman is the CEO of Redfin, a company that is, but they're, they don't, then one gentleman, they, they actually are just like, he was a sports professional and now he invests in real estate. Like, well, that compared to Glenn Kelman, I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know. All right. Well, let us know what you think. And that'll do it for this week. Thanks for listening. Be sure to send in your industry-related questions to show at doyouconvert.com. We'll touch base on those in a future episode. Have a great one. And it was good to see you all in Phoenix. See that (laughs) time warp thing I just did there? (laughs) Bye. Bye. Marketproof Marketing is proudly supported by Opendoor. Visit opendoor.com forward slash do you convert to learn how you can partner with Opendoor to increase certainty, speed, and ease for your home buyers. All opinions expressed by me, Andrew Peak, Jackie Lipinski, and our castmates are solely our own opinions. View hundreds of articles, videos, and more for free at doyouconvert.com. It's also the best way to find out how to connect with us on social networks or in real life. Now get to work and make sure your company is market-proof.